This is an ABC podcast. Those that have a go will get a go. Well, I've had a go, mate. I've worked for my life. National unemployment rate at the moment is, uh, I think it's 5.4. Sorry. I thought that election campaigns are tests of leadership, not tests of memory. Google it, mate. We had the debate. We worked through the hard issues. We came to an agreement. And I went to Glasgow. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RM Breakfast, joining you from Wurundjeri Land. And I'm Frank Kelly from Afternoon Briefing on the Gadigal land of the Aurora Nation today. Soon we're going to be joined by a columnist and former Labor advisor, Sean Kelly, to have a look at this election campaign so far. We're almost halfway through. It's been a pretty unusual week on the campaign trail this week, PK. First off, the opposition leader has been in ISO still with COVID, so he's missing the action. We've also seen the highest inflation number in more than 20 years drop smack bang into the middle of this election. And we've also seen the government cranking up a scare campaign against Labor on a carbon tax while also fending off friendly fire on emissions policies. So there's been a lot of, lot of pieces moving or not moving in the case of Albanese. This week. Yeah, well, he couldn't, could he? Um, no. I noticed the Prime Minister mentioned when he had COVID, Fran, that he did a bit more, um, which I thought was a little unkind, actually. Oh, I think he's and really going on about that, isn't he? I mean, you know. It's ridiculous. It's, COVID affects people differently. Yeah. And I just think don't go near COVID after everything people exactly. have gone through. Um, well, Fran, we're back. We do does feel like we're back to the future with the classic scare campaigns, um, particularly like this one. What Labor has is a tax, a sneaky carbon tax on traditional industries in this country. And that's not good for regional Australia. This goes to show just how desperate the Liberal Party have got now, that they're now saying that something that Tony Abbott created is a carbon tax. I reckon most people who are watching here at the moment have had a gut full of this. They're sick of politicians fighting about climate change. They just have to look out the window to know it's real. Look out the window to know it's real, says Jason Clare there. That's the voice you were hearing. So who's right, Fran? Is it a sneaky carbon tax or is it actually a Tony Abbott-era policy, like Labor says? Well, I thought that was a pretty good line by Jason Clare, actually, because I think the atmospherics around the climate debate are different this time than they were even just three years ago. But first off, PK, it's not a carbon tax, and I don't think it's sneaky, really, because Labor did release its policy last December. So, you know, it's not like sneaking up on it in this campaign. And it's not a carbon tax. It is ultimately about establishing a price on carbon for the 215 big emitters that are currently already under the umbrella of the government's own safeguard mechanism, which, yes, as Jason Clare mentioned, Tony Abbott brought in. It's the government's plan for ratcheting down emissions from big industry. That price is not fixed. Emitters will be encouraged to bring their emissions down through new technologies or otherwise offset them through offsets. And those offsets, PK, we don't have any detail on what kind of offset program Labor would institute, and perhaps industry is right to call for more details there. But, you know, international offsets, for instance, come as cheap as, I think it's around $2 a tonne for international credits, It can rise up to $30 a tonne for other kinds of credit schemes. But emitters are already, the biggest emitters, are already buying credits under the government's scheme. I think that cost is around $15 a tonne. But as I understand it, those credits are established with taxpayer-funded offset schemes. So 
the taxpayers actually paying for those schemes to the tune of several billion dollars under the Emissions Reduction Fund. So there is already money going out. Is that a tax? No, that's not a tax. That's on budget. So there's no carbon tax within Kui that I can see, but there certainly is a cost to taxpayers or industry because ultimately you can't cut emissions without it costing something. And we're already paying it, and you've just made that point excellently. We're paying it's not this, oh, it's some budget. Well, who, hang on a minute. How does the government get all this money that they spend in this budget? Oh, hang on a minute. Is it people who pay their taxes? I mean, this is just the lunacy of, of this, uh, this latest strategy. Look, as soon as the Business Council of Australia came out and basically rebuked and rebuffed the government's argument that it's a scary um, carbon tax, I thought that was an important moment actually in the campaign uh, the Business Council is not, you know, historically some best made of labour, but they say that this is the best mechanism, and it is actually an Abbott-era um, mechanism that labour is ratcheting up. And in fact, um, Labor's policy released last December took the recommendation of the Business Council and put it in their scheme. And that is a very different sort of atmospheric to last election campaign where the Business Council and others were leading charge against Labor's emissions reductions plans. Yeah, and I actually think that thing about scale campaigns, and we talked about them last um, podcast too, if people didn't hear, it was it's worth listening to because there are other scare campaigns going on. This is just the latest. The thing is about scare campaigns is you can't just rerun the last scare campaign, and this is a lesson for Labor too, right? You, you know, Medi-Scare was the 2016 story. You can't do the same scare campaign again. And same here with this. You know, this is not, as you say, the same uh, dynamics. The world has changed. Uh, the, 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 the government the federal government has signed our nation up to net zero emissions by 2050, for crying out loud. The dynamics have shifted enormously. And the other thing I think is worth mentioning is that this could actually backfire dramatically in terms of the, the very, very politically loaded language being used by the Prime Minister in those those seats being targeted by the Teal independents. You know, here they are trying to neutralise the issue of carbon, I thought, but they're, they're pumping up an old school campaign and... This is exactly the point that the Teal independents have been making, you know, that this that the people are over the climate wars, they don't want to hear any more of this. And here we have the government going back to the same language in what I consider a desperate attempt to try to scare voters. And it should be called out for what it is, because that's not to say, and you, you made that point well, that we shouldn't ask questions about how this looks. And I do think Labor was messy in um, the way that it explained it, wouldn't you say, over the first couple of days? Pat sure, Conroy. I think they messed up their lines. They 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 looked almost guilty of falling into that trap that Bill Shorten did last time, which is trying to have a message designed for the coal seats in Queensland, which is, don't worry, don't worry, our scheme doesn't get penalise you, when in fact Chris Bowen, the shadow minister, had to clean that up and say, well, some of these 215 emitters, which are the same emitters as on the government's list, actually are big coal producers but uh, external international pressures will be brought into account when the um, clean energy regulator decides what you play. So there will be some protection against those who are operating against industries overseas. So, you know, that was messy, I think, and it looked like Labor was being tricky and trying to telegraph one message to North Queensland and one message to the cities.
I, th- I think that's right. And then it, it gave the government an opening, but that's still not to say that that opening should have been exploited for to for a, you know this this sneaky carbon tax line. I still think that's a massive overreach. Look, you mentioned at the the beginning, Fran, that inflation is on the rise. Cost of living pressures became the central debating point during this week of the election campaign. People are listening to this whenever they might be, but we record on a Thursday morning, which means that basically this is post the inflation figures being um, released. Australian consumer prices jumped 2.1% in the first quarter of the year, meaning inflation has surged by 5.1% in the past year, which is staggering. Now, that far outstrips wage growth, meaning that many Australians have effectively had their wages cut, if you just do the comparison, how much your wages are growing versus your discretionary spending, right? Um, what you can actually spend money on. Labor keeps repeating the mantra that the cost of everything is going up except your wages. The Prime Minister, though, Fran, says that the government is just, you know, not responsible here. This is international factors. How much of that is true? And he also labelled Labor's wages line as a big con. Is it? Well, no, it's true that wages aren't going up that amount. Wages growth has been very slow over the last five years. It is starting to pick up. Economists say that the official figures aren't actually reflecting the wages growth that is going on in the economy. But it's not going to match 5.1%. So wages growth for, for most and we're talking most of the economy, is not going to match that. So effectively, that is a wage impact. Um, You know, is this a danger for the coalition, PK? Um, An inflation figure like this and potentially interest rates going up in the middle of a campaign, that's one way of looking at it because it does feed into that uh, election slogan. But I think um, a big if is it also feeds into the Prime Minister's key election message, which is now is not the time to risk the economy, to risk your job, to risk Australia's future with an untested Labor government led by a leader you don't really know, who doesn't have a lot of experience in managing the economy. That's been Scott Morrison's line. He's out and again on this Thursday morning when we're recording this, saying exactly that, don't risk labour. And that concern was showing up in early focus group testing. I know that, you know, people don't like Scott Morrison, but they're not sure they want to risk the other guy, you know, ruining the economy. So it's there on voters' minds. The Prime Minister's been hammering it. How does this feed into that? PK, you know... 5.1% 5.1% inflation, that's one thing. People are feeling it at the supermarket. They're feeling it at the petrol bowser. But they're really going to feel it, a lot of people, when interest rates go up. And and that will now perhaps happen as soon as next week when the Reserve Bank meets. You know, yeah. they're, they're going to go up a lot, PK. If, if the interest rate goes up one full percentage point or 100 basis points by the end of the year, that's on the average New South Wales mortgage, which is $630,000, I think, that's around $530 a month. By the end of next year, economists are predicting it will be 200 basis points. That would amount to more than $1,000 a month. That's a lot of pain for most mortgage holders because most mortgage holders uh, have variable mortgages, so they will be affected by this. So, you know, will voters blame the government for that price shock or will they fear Labor in these tougher times? That's the $64 million question. It is. The RBA is under enormous pressure, Fran. I mean, there was the sort of thinking was that they, that this wouldn't happen during the election campaign. It did happen in 2007. The Prime Minister, uh, I think, has really now given political cover for the RBA be able to do it because he he says it's not 2007, he mm. says. He's, you know, they're at record lows. It's not the same as 2007. Which and is true. It is really different. It, it is, is really, really different, different interest rate environment. Interest rates are at 0.1% officially and they were, I think, 6.5% back mm. in 2007. So that's a big difference. 
It is a big difference. And he also points out that people who have borrowings uh, are prepared for this, that they're, that if you look at the way people have managed their money, that they're at least two years ahead in their loan repayments so that there's a buffer. Banks have said the same thing. They feel there's a buffer. Mm. But Fran, I, I still think that the reality is that many people are going to feel that and it's going to hurt them and it's going to sting and it could lead to all sorts of consequences, particularly when, when you look at sort of the rising cost of living. It's going to be real and... The Prime Minister hopes that people stick to the devil they know, thinking, well, they're overall better on the economy. Labor's trying to, like, flip the, flip the script, though, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. That's what they're trying to do. They're, they're going to say, look, $250 a week you might be paying by the end of next year because the government hasn't managed this correctly, because they've allowed inflation to rise. The government's saying, look, it's not us, it's international factors, and would you trust these other guys to do any better? Again, that's essentially what it comes down to when voters, as Paul Keating would say, go into those little electoral booths on the election day with their stubby little pencils, what will be in their mind? Who will they trust to manage the economy? Or will they simply vote on, we've had enough of this lot? They can take their own pencils now. (laughs) Should we bring our guest in? Let's do it. Sean Kelly, columnist for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age and former Labor advisor, welcome to the party room. Thanks so much for having me. Sean, lovely to have you here on the party room. Sean, let's cast our minds all the way back to Tuesday of this week when (laughs) Labor announced their promise to boost foreign aid to the Pacific by more than half a billion dollars over four years. If they won the election, Shadow Foreign Minister Penny Wong said Scott Morrison's gone missing in action in the region following that controversial security pact between Solomon Islands and China. Sean, is talking about the Pacific likely to work for Labor in this campaign or does it benefit the government if we're talking about national security? The government certainly likes to talk tough on national security on China, but Labor has kept pushing this. It clearly thinks it can turn this around. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question. It's a bit like climate in the last few elections. Climate is, is one of those issues you expect that if Labor were fighting on that issue, it would be a good thing uh, for the progressive party. But in fact, it's been a relentlessly negative issue for them. And national security... You always hope uh, that you're fighting on the issues that favour your side. And, of course, the Liberal Party would be happy to be fighting on national security ordinarily. But there is a sense that that the Solomons is a, a potential weakness for them. And I think that's really interesting in terms of the campaign in two ways. One is uh, one is the, the, the superficial strategic level, which is that Labor, I think, has not shown a lot of agility to this campaign. They've been quite slow to jump on issues when they've needed to, but that seemed to shift a bit this week. They jumped on the Solomons issue very quickly. They were determined uh, to turn it to their advantage, and I think they've kept the pressure on. And that was that was an interesting shift in tempo from Labor. The other way in which it's interesting is that I think Labor has struggled to get a firm grasp on how to handle China over the last couple of years, and they've struggled because Scott Morrison has been so. Uh, so clear in his positioning. Uh, He's been so clear that China is a threat to the global order and he is going to cast himself as the man to stand up to China. And so whenever Labor has tried to weave a slightly more nuanced position, they've risked looking weak on China and Scott Mm. Morrison has jumped on that every time. So what's really interesting about the Solomons issue is that it's moved the, the question away from how do you handle China 
to how do you handle the region. Mm. And that's an issue on which Scott Morrison is much more vulnerable because it's about relationships with leaders and it's an issue on which Labor is much less vulnerable. Yeah, that's a really good point. Look, on Anzac Day, we also saw Defence Minister Peter Dutton come out and declare that Australia needs to be prepared for future war in our region. Here he is. The only way uh, that you can you can preserve peace is, is to prepare for war and to be strong as a country, not to cower, not to uh, you know be on bended knee and uh, be uh, you know weak. That's that's the reality. So that's Peter Dutton speaking to Channel Nine. He also compared Russian President Vladimir Putin to Adolf Hitler. He's repeatedly compared China's ambitions to those of Nazi Germany. What do you make of Dutton's comments? Is this a strategy working for the coalition? This massively muscular language that that he uses. Well, it, it is an attempt to take the debate back to a question of China. I, th- I think that's the way to view the split between the two uh, parties' approach to the issue in public during an election campaign. Obviously, you know the most politicised atmosphere you can possibly have, uh, and I think that's what Peter Dutton is is trying to do. Is it is it working? Look, it, it risks sounding a bit uh, exaggerated. Uh, But uh, I think there is a lot of concern in the community and that the fundamental thing he's really doing is amping up the sense of uncertainty. And I think there is a really strong sense in the coalition that the sense of uncertainty in the community is something that will play better for the government. It plays better to the argument of the the, the devil you know. And I, I think that's really where Peter Dutton's efforts are focused. Yeah, that's clearly what they're trying to do, as you say, get the turn that any debate back to China. Uh, Labor, I think, though, is getting a sense that that overamped language, as they describe it, you know, the by and large, the electorate sees it as a bit over the top, as a bit sort of childish. But it's hard to know, isn't it? As, as we've said before, when people go into that little booth with the stubby little pencil, um, you know, <laughs> what's going to play on their on their minds? Is it is it fears about the economy? Is it fears about national security? And where does that go? Exactly. And, and what, I, what I think is interesting about the, the shape of this campaign, which is very strange, that we've had quite a quite a bitsy campaign in lots mm, of ways. Very uh, much. You know, exactly. And now we're heading into the final three weeks. And, and in a sense, that's been compressed by Anthony Albanese's brush with COVID. Mm. Uh, and then Labor's launch comes on on Sunday. And I think that will be the start of uh, of a really high energy three weeks from both sides, because I think both, both will know that the last three weeks haven't made uh, an enormous amount of difference. And I think neither side has been particularly good at prosecuting uh, the single issues that they want to dominate the campaign. So I think we'll see both sides return uh, return very sharply to the issues they want. And for, for the coalition, I think that's probably not actually national security at this point so much. I think it's probably more uh, the economy. I, th- I think in a way, Peter Dutton's comments uh, are a little bit uh, defensive, I guess. They're, they're trying to drag the issue back to favoured territory rather than being something that's necessarily where the coalition would want the debate. I think they need the debate on the economy and they'll try very hard to get it back there. Look, you, you mentioned that it's been bitsy and it has. It's like a smorgasbord of issues across the week. So let's go to one of those. This week we also saw what I think was the return of maybe the climate wars or something odd, uh, Sean. It all kicked off when I interviewed Colin Boyce on RM Breakfast. He's the LNP candidate for Flynn, which is based around Gladstone. Zero net carbon emissions by 2050. Uh, Morrison's document uh, is a flexible plan. It leaves us wiggle room uh, as we proceed into the future. 
Okay, so he says it's Wiggle a flexible, <laughs> flexible plan. So <laughs> everyone got rather excited about that. And then uh, Scott Morrison tried to argue he was talking about the strategy to get to net zero being flexible, not the commitment. Well, I asked the question, I can assure you it was the commitment. In any case... The story kicked on when the outspoken LNP Senator Matt Canavan went even further on afternoon briefing. Here he is. Well, the net zero thing is all sort of dead anyway. I mean, Boris Johnson's said he's pausing the net zero commitment. Germany's building coal and gas infrastructure. Italy's reopening coal-fired power plants. Uh, it's all over. I mean, it's all over bar the shouting here. And- it's all over bar the shouting. Sean, this was tricky for the government to manage this week because obviously they need the votes of people in those Liberal seats being targeted by the so-called teal independents around the inner cities. But in some regional centres, the feelings are very different, though even Matt Canavan's own colleagues in regional Queensland were pretty jack of him. Does he need to pull his head in? Yeah, pull your head in, Matt. That's, that's <laughs> LNP member Michelle Landry in Capricornia. Pull your head in, Matt. Sean, are the climate wars back, as PK said, causing trouble for both sides this time? Look, I, I think the truth is that the climate wars never really went away. Uh, I think you know, on, on the coalition side to start there, uh, I think that the the press overall gave Scott Morrison an enormous amount of credit for reaching the net zero commitment, for bringing his party with him to net zero by 2050. And and I can see why that happened, because it was a really protracted debate over a couple of years, and it looked like it wasn't going to be possible, and then he managed it. But I, I think that was a, a mistake, and it was a mistake because it was really giving credit for what was a political achievement rather than a substantive achievement. Uh, when you're talking about a goal that is to be reached by 2050 uh, without any action necessarily have to be taken a long time before that. You're not really talking about getting a move on. You're not really talking about anything that matters now. Uh, in a sense, it was a fudge that everybody in the party could go along with, even if they didn't really want to do anything on climate. And I think that's what you're seeing now. You're seeing an eruption of that. You're seeing, in a way, an unmasking of the fact that that was always a political achievement and not really a substantive achievement. Is it a risk for the coalition to be seen to be saying one thing in the cities and another in the region? I mean, isn't that what cost Labor so significantly at the last election? Well, exactly right. Bill Shorten was, uh, I think, fairly seen to be talking out both sides of his mouth on Adani and that really hurt him. I think it does potentially hurt the coalition. I think it hurts them mostly because my sense is that the uh, the equation on climate politically has shifted. And, and that's not to say there's there's uh, dramatic will in the community to do an enormous amount. I, I wouldn't be quite that optimistic. But uh, what I do think is that it has shifted from everybody's a problem to there being a, a simple question, are you serious on climate? And I think this split in the coalition undermines Scott Morrison's claim to be serious on climate. Uh, and so I, th- I think that is an issue for him, not just in the, in the teal independent seats, uh, but probably a little bit more broadly. Sean, you mentioned earlier in terms of this campaign, how it's progressing. We're nearly halfway through, as you say, Anthony Albanese lost a week through to COVID. Um, That's certainly had an impact on the atmospherics of it all. But we're about to kick into, you know, five-day weeks instead of four-day weeks for a start with all the holidays out of the way, Mm. the opposition leader back on the election trail. Every election at some point around about this time, there is a battle over debates. How many debates will they have? Who will front up where? (laughs) Will they be... You know, people's debates, will they be, you know, free-to-air debates, where will they be? It's happening again. Here's the Prime Minister. 
He'll be rejoining the campaign trail. It's time to make up for some lost time. I'm happy to do two debates next week. Seven and nine have both offered me two debates next week. I'm happy to do both of them. I said I'd do three. I've already done one. He said he'd debate me anywhere, anytime. So seven and nine, they've booked the hall. I'll be there. I look forward to seeing it. Sean, how important are debates? That sounded like a challenge from Scott Morrison there. Will Anthony Albanese take the bait? Does he sort of have to, to appear to be honouring his pledge of, I'm happy to debate him anywhere, anytime? And how important or how important are they to shifting votes, uh, debates in these last few weeks of an election? Look, Scott Morrison's words are really interesting because ordinarily it's the candidate who is coming from behind who really wants the debates. And often that's the opposition leader because they want to kind of elevate themselves and stand there alongside the Prime Minister and assume the potential Prime Ministerial mantle. So I think that's interesting that Scott Morrison's pushing for that. I don't think they are often enormously important in driving uh, the results of campaigns. But that said, I think they are tremendously important in terms of uh, democratic engagement, in terms of what an election should be about, because you actually see both candidates there. If the debate is run well, then you actually see them being forced to grapple with questions and not just utter talking points again and again and again. And and. We know now that politicians are exceptionally good at offering a blank wall of words. We all they really hate are. it. <laughs> they really are. And I think debates can sometimes offer a way through that. And I think as, as voters, we all deserve that. What what happened to, to the commitments of all sides to uh, for an independent debates commission? I, I feel like that has really fallen away and it feels <sighs> like it's about time that happened. It's disappeared. I mean, my vague memory is that the government did come up with something but uh, I can't remember the terms of it. Whatever they were, it wasn't acceptable to Labor. But you certainly, we need to get back into that territory. That This is just a silly debate that interrupts every election, A really. debate? A debate about, about a debate. debates. <laughs> I think it's embarrassing that it is still as ad hoc as it is. This is, you know, this has been going on for decades. We should have three set debates. It should be really clear when they're going to, to be held. They should, there should be clear rules. Uh, I think that would make the campaign much simpler. I think so too. Look, Sean, just taking you back to a column that you wrote where you were sort of raising questions around Labor's small target approach to this election and the risks that that provides. Do you see those risks still playing out? Okay, I I do. I think that Labor probably didn't quite grasp all of the advantages that that offering more policy give you. You know, I think we've narrowed this a a little bit to small target, big target. You know, successful oppositions perhaps don't always offer uh, massive targets to be hit, but they do offer uh, a range of policies that that offer people a reason to vote for them. And that gives you three things. Firstly, if there is concern about an opposition, and there is always concern about an opposition because they haven't yet been in government, we don't know exactly what they'll be like, the policies in some ways say, this is what we will do. Uh, They are a way of assuaging people's concerns about the fact that you could do anything in the next three years. Secondly, they're the shortest, sharpest way of telling voters who you are. You know, you can tell all the log cabin stories in the world about your childhood, but ultimately if you say, these are my three policies, that tells voters an enormous amount. And finally, it gives you practice at being a target. It gives you practice at having to stand up and take the slings and arrows of the media and, and standing up to that pressure. And I but think isn't Labor trying to do that with, you know, aged care, child care, Medicare, Labor cares? They do have aged care policies. They do have child care policies. Are you saying they're not sort of big enough announcements really to to cut through? 
I, I think aged care probably got closest, but no, I, I don't think they're big, as, big enough announcements to cut through. Uh, I think that Anthony Albanese, uh, when he first made the childcare announcement in his first budget reply, uh, that seemed significant. I'm surprised Labor hasn't built more on that. Has, hasn't Yeah, because it's a know, $5 billion policy. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it feels a little bit like that faded away very quickly and I, I don't think many voters, I'm not sure any even very seasoned political observers could tell you exactly what that policy is, which I think gives you some sense of how much mm. it's faded away. And, and so and that failure to put policy debates at the centre of the campaign is also what's resulted in, in this horrible bitsy personality-based campaign. Okay, Sean, let's look briefly at the other side of the ledger. Last year you wrote a book called The Game. It was really an examination of Scott Morrison, how he emerged as a politician and then as a prime minister. What did you learn about Scott Morrison writing that book and are you seeing those patterns play out in this campaign? Absolutely. I think the thing that I learned about Scott Morrison is just how skilled he is at uh, at not telling people things that are unhelpful and at transmitting a very narrow, helpful set of messages. Uh, so in a way, Scott Morrison's career was, was divided in two. There was pre-2015 when he knew the power of the media and he didn't really to answer questions. He didn't really tell people anything about himself. He wanted to keep the attention away from himself. And then after 2015, he becomes a prime ministerial candidate. And there's, there's a sense in, in many quarters in 2015 that he might even take over from Tony Abbott. And suddenly you see him begin to talk about curries and you begin to see him talking about the Cronulla Sharks a lot. And uh, my point is not to, uh, not to rubbish that. My point is that he had two things that he wanted to transmit to the Australian public that he believed would explain to them in, short, succinct, in a short, succinct way who he was. And I think that did get him through the 2019 campaign. Uh, what's really interesting, I think, about the 22 campaign is I think people are less interested in who he is now. You know, he's, he's not an unknown quantity, he's not a fresh candidate. They have some sense of who the bloke is, uh, which isn't necessarily serving him well. What they want to know is what he wants to do as prime minister. Uh, and, I, you know, this is, this is really the issue still for both of the candidates. Uh, you know, we we have one candidate who, who people don't know at all, and that's proving to be a real problem for Anthony Albanese. One candidate who voters do know quite well, Scott Morrison, and that's proving to be a problem for him. And both of them, in a way, need to tell us who they're going to be as Prime Minister. And with three weeks left in the campaign, I don't think voters have a clear sense of that yet. The other part of this, which I do think is interesting, is just, um, you know, the, the, the Prime Minister, obviously, the electorate does know him three years later and there's a sense that, well, they made their mind up on him, right, Sean, many people, and they don't like what they've seen, they th that, that his style has actually really um, pressed people's buttons. Oh, ab absolutely. And a big part of that style is that, that marketing, if you like, that ability to transmit uh, succinct messages through really clear, crisp images. Brilliant talent in many ways. Again, got him through the 2019 campaign. But the difficulty, I think, and I've had a number of people say this to me, uh, is that once you've seen those tricks, you can't unsee them. And the problem for Scott Morrison is it means that when he falls back on what has traditionally been his strength of great photo opportunities, people no longer see what he's trying to sell them. They just see the fact he's trying to sell them something. And that uh, turns a strength into a weakness. And this happens to all politicians eventually. Uh, their, their strength 
ends up becoming their weakness. I think perhaps it's happened faster for Scott Morrison because of the immense amount of focus that's been placed on him because of the rolling crises under his watch. Yeah, that's right. It goes back to don't hold a hose, mate, and on it goes, and that's why Labor's turning that into an ad. Sean, fantastic to have you on the party room. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. See you, Sean. Questions without notice. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and, and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. And we're pleased it's happening too. Thank you for all your questions. They're really flowing in during this campaign. Our question today comes from Joss Ellison, and it's this one. Given that the independents, specifically the Teal independents, are often asked by the media how they deal with the parties in the event of a hung parliament, why is Scott Morrison never asked about how he'd deal with the nationals to form government? What would be in such an agreement and whether the details would be made public? PK? Great question, and I believe he should be asked. I think that's a really good question. And I, I like to offer a little, little, little nuggets here when I can, and so I have this to share with you. Watch this space. If we're in hung parliament territory, and a lot of people say based on the current numbers, we are very much in that territory, and Scott Morrison finds him without a, himself without a majority and a couple of independents to negotiate with, he will negotiate for government. Don't let anyone fool you. That, that wouldn't happen. Anyone would try. So will Labor. And if he tries to deal with the independents, their key demands, they've told me, I spoke to Monique Ryan this morning on RM Breakfast, for instance, on Thursday, that their key um, demands will be better action on climate change, essentially, uh, more detail on that, of course, and an integrity commission. Those two things must be strengthened. Back to your nationals question, the Prime Minister must negotiate a deal with the nationals to form a coalition at the beginning of each term. To do a deal with the nationals and these so-called teal independents, if there are a couple or one even, right, will be very hard. How do you marry those two things? And the nationals will muscle up, so will those independents, and I don't envy anyone having to find <laughs> a pathway through those. And the nationals will flex their muscle and they will demand, they always demand a deal, but the deal will be even more important. And I just reckon I can't see a pathway. And back to you, why isn't he asked more questions? Well, I think he should be asked that question. Okay. The point about that is, there's, as, as you say, there's always a coalition agreement between the National Party leader, who will be the Deputy Prime Minister, and the Prime Minister, should they be elected. But it's always secret. It's never made public. There is an increasing clamour, I think, for that deal to be made public. And I, I reckon that the point you make is right, exactly, that if he's trying to negotiate with Teal Independence and the Nationals, there's a clash there. Would dollars do it again, as it seemed to do it with the Nationals, you know, $20 billion price tag we now know for their support for net zero by 2050? Um, I don't think so. Um, but I reckon that the Independents may be insisting that the deal with the Nationals is made public. And that would be interesting to see. Yeah, it will be very interesting to see. But woo, what a wicked dilemma. That's why the Prime Minister's trying to scare the bejesus out of everyone and say, you don't want chaos. Don't don't vote for them because he he can see that headache. He, he doesn't want to be part of it. Keep sending your questions in because we love getting them. You can tweet using the hashtag The Party Room or email your questions to thepartyroom at abc.net.au. And remember to follow us, The Party Room, on your ABC Listen app or your favourite podcast app. Or maybe even see us in person at our live show, Fran. That's exactly right. We've got a Party Room Live election edition Canberra Theatre Centre on Monday the 2nd of May at 7pm with some 
some special guests, fabulous Amy Ramikas and Karen Middleton. So don't miss it. Go to the Canberra Theatre Centre website to buy tickets if you're going to be in and around the National Capital. We would love to see you there. Yeah, I know many of you have been, but I think there's a couple left. So please think about doing that because we'd love to see you. Well, that's it for the party room. Thanks so much for your company. See you, Fran. See you, PK. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.